a series on the book of Philippians. Um, we're up to uh, lesson number eight, um, which just happens to be the last one. So we're going to finish off the book of Philippians this morning. So just some background for those who have not been uh, present in uh, the previous ones. The city of Philippi, uh, which the book of Philippians is um, written to, uh, was founded by the Apostle Paul after he was working um, in Asia. Uh, he, he, he was trying to go around the, the different cities in in Asia, but God called him through a dream uh, with a man of Macedonia to to uh, to draw him over to this completely unreached part of the world. And so uh, very soon after uh, the the Apostle Paul uh, landed in uh, Macedonia, he visited uh, the city of Philippi. And from there, a church was born. And then he went around um, down through parts of Greece um, and uh, teaching and, and establishing churches there as well. But the church of Philippi was uh, a church that Paul held very close to his heart. Um, it was born out of a lot of adversity. It was born out of a lot of contentions. The city of Philippi um, had been freed by one of the Roman uh, generals um, and basically made into a little Rome. It was Roman in its thinking and its attitudes and uh, in its business. And all of the people within there had been given the same... Uh, the same privileges as Roman uh, citizens of, of actual Rome. So it was, it was Roman in its thinking. It was Roman in its, in, in its actions and in, in the way that it viewed the world. Rome was um, very anti the Christians. Um, it took, took away um, worship of, of their, their temples and money that would come in through, through that. And Rome were very much against the Christians uh, because one of the things that they taught is that the Roman emperor was not, the Caesar was not a god, whereas, that, whereas he was regarded in many circles as, as being a god. So um, the Romans were very anti uh, the Christians because of that, and so there was a lot of persecution in the church of Philippi. And so that's the background of the book of Philippians. So... Last lesson, um, oh, um, the theme of the book of Philippians, uh, we go over every, every time. Uh, the theme of the book of Philippians is that the church should always be moving forward in unity, not backward, no matter what the trials or the persecution are. So in the last lesson, we looked at Philippians, and if you haven't already turned there, if you could turn to Philippians chapter 4, um, and we'll start at verse 6. I really do believe that the Lord wants to talk to us this morning. I believe that the tongues and interpretations, the, the prophecies that we've had, um, go right in line with what we're going to be discussing this morning. 
Right, in the last lesson, we looked at all um, up to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So when, when we do the right things, when we pray, when, when we're thankful to the Lord, when we keep going to Him, then He will give us His peace. Even in the middle of trials and tribulations, we can have a peace within ourselves knowing that God has control and is in charge of every single situation. So that brings us to Philippians 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Once again, we're going to follow very closely to Brother Brian Kinsey's book, Philippians, The Bride's Prize, um, which is published by the Pentecostal Publishing House. So Paul, having shown us the connection between our thoughts, our prayers, and also our actions, now instructs us to think correctly and shows us exactly how to do that and what it looks like. Paul understood what modern psychology increasingly confirms, that there is a direct link between the things we think about and the actions we take. This is nothing less than what Jesus pointed out, saying, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's from Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. Fill your mind with good things, Paul advised, and allow your mind to dwell on them. The idea of meditation seems foreign to some Christians because it smacks of Eastern religion. However, Paul clearly taught the concept here, and meditation is certainly a biblical subject. Isaac meditated in the field at evening tide in Genesis 24 and verse 63. Joshua was charged by God to meditate day and night. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. The blessed man in Psalm 1 is one who meditates on the law of the Lord. Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 to 2. David became wiser than his teachers through meditation. Psalm chapter 119 verse 99. And Paul commanded Timothy to meditate on these things. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 15. The key distinctive of biblical meditation as opposed to worldly meditation is to dwell on or contemplate truth that has already been revealed rather than attempt to find new revelation. Christians meditate on such things as the Lord himself, as Psalm 63 and 6 says, God's wonderful works, as Psalm 77 and verse 12 says, and his revealed word. Paul described the right thoughts that promote the spiritual blessing of divine peace and listed them in this text. He began with those things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, or praiseworthy. Whatever is honest, the James Moffat translation uses the word worthy, 
refers to any person walking in the world with the dignity of holiness upon them. Whatever is just refers to duty, a man who desires to fulfill his duty both to man and to God. Pure refers to moral purity, and any temptation for sexual impurity can and should be resisted by a proper thought life. As it says in Ephesians chapter 14 verses 17 to 24 and chapter 5 verses 8 to 12. Lovely refers to those who are never moved to vengeance, bitterness or criticism, but keep their thoughts on the goodness, the kindness and the long-suffering of God. That is such an important thing to practice and, and to be of that mind. When we dwell on criticism, when we dwell on the wrong things, then it's only going to lead to bitterness. It's only going to lead to spiraling down into worse thoughts. But when we think on Jesus in spite of what we're feeling, then he will lift us up. A good report refers not just to our thinking, but to our speech. Things that are worthy to tell God and others. We should never allow our thoughts or our speech to speak falsely or unfairly. We should never bring dishonor to a person's name. Whatever possesses virtue refers to excellence. We should even think of our past life in the highest terms rather than the lowest points. Whatever motivated and inspired us to grow, to increase, to get better in life rather than succumb to bitterness about our disappointments. It's a complete change of thinking. Finally, the Apostle Paul's exhortation, if there be any praise, refers to lifting people up rather than tearing them down. Christians cannot afford to waste precious time on gossip and angry thoughts that would seek to destroy others and tear them down. Even the thought alone can be destructive. You don't even have to say anything. You can just be thinking it. Even the thought alone can be destructive, much, much, much less sharing it with others, which definitely increases the destructive power of these toxic emotions and thought patterns. It is impossible to become a spiritually minded person while allowing the mind to dwell on carnal things. We must be careful about what we allow into our minds and particularly what we allow to dwell there. Living as we do in a world of constant communication through all types of media, we must be especially vigilant to guard the eye gate and the ear gate. Our value system can be formed or misinformed without conscious awareness on our part. The, the people who work in advertising know that very, very well. You can manipulate people's emotions. You can manipulate people's thinking and, and their, their feelings about things through advertisements, through media. We must take control of our reading, our video watching, and our social media consumption. We must guard our thoughts and allow only those things that are true, pure, excellent, and praiseworthy to dwell in our mind, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you put rubbish in, you're going to get rubbish out. And it's going to affect you and it's going to affect those around you. I feel very strongly that the Lord is speaking to someone about that this morning. Verse 9. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Paul understood and made it clear that in order for us to experience true peace, we need three basic but powerful ingredients. We need a proper prayer life. 
That includes praying the right way, as we looked at in verses 6 to 7 at the beginning. Taking authority over our thoughts and thinking correctly in verse 8. But we can't just do those things. We must also act on these thoughts and prayers by doing what is right and making right choices that create the right behaviors. Echoing his earlier call for the Philippians to imitate his example, as we looked at in a previous lesson in chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul here urged the church to put into practice whatever they had learned about him, learned or received directly from him, or observed in his life and his conduct. Discipleship is as much caught as taught. Being around mature Christians, we learn as much from our informal interactions with them and observation of them as we do from their direct teaching. This is the tremendous value of Christian camps, retreats, church dinners or other gatherings of believers that appear to be mostly social and unstructured, especially when they go across different generations in nature. Younger and newer believers learn a great deal by hearing the saints pray, by watching how they conduct themselves, by observing their conversations, and even by socializing together. And that is why, if you're a believer, make sure that your life matches up with the Word of God. When, when you're with other people around the Church of God, and, and especially when you're not, um, there should be a witness, there should be um, a good example for others to follow. Because... The newer people in the church, everyone around you is, is not, is not, um, is not trying to make you feel uncomfortable, but people are watching, to use that kind of a sense of the word. They, they take in the way that you act, that you react. And if you're not acting and reacting the way that God wants you to, then you are pro- most probably imparting that to other people as well. And they, can become like your worst parts. Younger and newer believers learn a great deal by hearing the saints pray, by watching how they conduct themselves, by observing their conversations, and even by socializing together. Following Christ is much more than just adopting a set of doctrines. It is a way of living. After all, Jesus said, Follow me, in Matthew 4 and 19. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus' call was to follow him. He was the perfect example. He was the one that, that you, you took in everything as much as you could from him because the example was perfect, the example was pure. And the more that you got out of following Jesus, the better you were following God. The emphasis was on being with Christ, learning from Him and imitating Him. We grow as much by watching the lives of great believers as from listening to their sermons or to their lessons. Facts in the head are not enough. We must also have truths in the heart. In Paul's ministry, he not only taught the Word, but also lived it so that his listeners could see the truth in his life. That's why he wasn't ashamed to say, follow me, follow me as I follow Christ. Because he knew that he was a good example. He knew that he was living the way that God wanted him to live. Paul's experience ought to be our experience. Every child of God needs to receive a constant diet of the Word of God. 
When we hear it, we must learn it and then act on it by doing what we have heard. James 1 and 22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. We can't just come to church and, and say, well, that was a nice message. That was a great sermon. And then go away and forget about it and just do the same things over and over again. That is just wasted time. We need to listen to the word of God. We need to let it come into our hearts. We, our hearts need to be open uh, every time we come to hear the, the word of God. And that's what I was praying before we came to, um, to the ministry of the word this morning. Verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me has flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Paul returned to the theme of personal gratitude for the Philippians, stating his great joy at their provision for him. The word, again, makes it clear that the Philippians' support for Paul had been interrupted for a time. He later remarked that they were the only church in Macedonia to support his ministry, as we'll see in verse 15. But apparently their support was discontinued, possibly because Paul was being held in some place where they could not reach him, or perhaps because the church lacked the resources to share. In any case, the Philippians renewed their support through a gift sent along with Epaphroditus, and Paul here thanked them for their concern. Paul's mention of the break in support was not a rebuke to the Philippians, rather it increased his joy. Whatever the reason that their support was broken, it was in no way held against them. Verse 11, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul quickly followed his mention of support with an assurance that he was well supplied. He did not speak in respect of one or that he was in need, that he needed um, um, the, that offering. Paul's point here was not to subtly let the church know that he needed additional funding, but merely to thank them for their generosity. Paul understood that the ability to be content was a learned behavior, meaning it did not come naturally but was a product of the proper spiritual training. To claim this contentment regardless of the situation was even more remarkable because being in prison in Rome was no cakewalk. That's where Paul was. He was in prison when he wrote this epistle. The fact that Paul learned this shows growth on his part and points to a time when perhaps he had a greater sense of entitlement or expectation. Paul was a Pharisee. He was, he was on the fast track to success. He persecuted the church, but God turned him around in a mighty way. And so there would have been a time when he felt entitled. He felt like he was, he was in the right place. His zeal for God was unquestionable. He persecuted the church with great zeal. And so he probably had a sense of entitlement that, you know, he, he should get some measure of glory, should, should get some support for what he was doing. But now he's learned that he can be content wherever he is and in whatever situation he is. Through the ups and downs of missionary service, he had learned that God adequately provides for every situation. As Paul wrote to Timothy, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Uh, from the NIV translation. 
First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Although Paul never allowed himself to become complacent as he pursued the prize with, resent, with relentless abandon, he also had the maturity to recognize that being content in circumstances he had no power to change was the true source of the joy. You can find contentment in whatever situation you find yourself. Even in the worst circumstances, even if you feel like you're about to go under, you can have a contentment in Jesus. He was able to urge the Philippians to experience this contentment because he himself lived with contentment day by day. This is a lesson that each Christian must learn as well. There are so many times when we're not content with what we have, with what God has given us or with the situation that we're in, we want to be anywhere else. But we lose the fact of what God is teaching us. We lose the fact when we're not content that God wants us to grow in Him, just like Paul had to grow. Often we feel discontent with our situation, particularly in a material sense, because we compare ourselves to those around us. Like the psalmist, we become envious of the foolish when we see the prosperity of the wicked. In Psalms 73 and verse 3. Why don't I have that? We may wonder when observing the material things that our neighbors enjoy. Or we may ask, what's the use of following Christ when others seem to have a better life? We deliberately overlook the fact that many who seem to enjoy comfortable lives are able to do so only because they are deeply in debt and others do so because of their corrupt ways. The former are actually slaves to their extravagant lifestyle while the latter are facing certain judgment. To compare ourselves with others is a sure path to discontentment. And that's not what God calls us to. To find contentment, we keep our focus on God and His gracious provision for us. Now, we've heard from the Lord this morning that he's going to provide our needs, that he's always going to be there for us. He's going to be with us in every situation. We can trust in him. We don't have to be discontent with what we have. We just put our trust that he will provide all of our needs. To find contentment, we keep our focus on God and his gracious provision for us. You know, he doesn't need to provide for us, but he does. And... He often does it abundantly, far more than, than we ever need. Um, that's the kind of a God we serve. When we consider all that God has done, we are grateful despite our immediate circumstances. That is something that is such an important principle to learn. If you don't have that principle, then, then do all you can to learn that. If we can be grateful in our circumstances, then we're not going to become bitter. It's impossible to become bitter if we're grateful. If we think only of others and what they seem to enjoy, we will be miserable no matter how much we have. That's a principle. Verse 12. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul's ability to be content was rendered even more dramatic by his next statement, listing some of the varied circumstances he had faced. Paul understood that when he referred to whatever circumstance, when he had little or when he had abundance, whether hungry or well-fed, he knew that Jesus was his all-sufficient 
grace. Paul's description of his varied circumstances here is rather modest. Elsewhere, he gave more detail about the difficulties that he had suffered in the cause of Christ. He had been whipped on five occasions, beaten with rods three times, pelted with stones once, shipwrecked three times, stranded on the open sea, preyed upon by bandits, fellow Jews and Gentiles, suffered the dangers of constant travel, suffered hunger and thirst and been naked and cold. That's not a small list of achievements, if you want to call them that. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 27. Yet Paul was content, even when writing this letter from a Roman prison. Help us, Lord, to be content. Paul's contentment was stable even when his circumstances changed because it was founded in Christ, not in the world around him. If comparing ourselves to others is a path to dis... Oh, seriously... If comparing ourselves to others is a path to discontentment, then gauging our sense of well-being according to our circumstances is certain to bring frustration. Our circumstances change often very quickly and through no doing of our own. Illness, natural disaster, grief, economic downturns, rejection by friends or peers, any of these may come at any time and we don't have any control over them. The Christian whose sense of contentment depends on everything in life being perfect is certain to be miserable. Those who have learned as Paul did to be content in any and every situation are certain to be at peace even when others disappoint or life becomes difficult. So one way is certain to be miserable, the other way is certain to bring peace. What is the secret to this peace? Paul described it in the following verse. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Paul explained exactly how it was possible to maintain composure, his way of living despite the shifting circumstances in his life. He could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. This is not to say that Paul claimed some sort of omnipotence or or having all power. This is not a claim that he could achieve any feat, but that he could face any circumstance through the power of Christ. Some people try to twist that to mean that, you know, we can do anything that we want to do through Christ. But it really means we can face any situation with the power of Christ. One reason we are so often discouraged is that we forget what our true situation is. No matter where we are, we have Christ with us. Exactly as the tongue interpretation said this morning. We have the power of the Holy Spirit available to us every minute of the day. So what should be our response to the challenges we face? If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. We can indeed do all things through Christ who gives us strength. The Lord wants to give some of us strength this morning. Verse 14, notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction or my need. Paul concluded his thought by returning to praise for his beloved Philippians. You have done well, he said, in sharing in his afflictions. 
Christian fellowship is vital at all times, and especially when we face difficulties. The pattern of the early church was to share all things in common with an emphasis on helping those in need, as Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 45 says. The writer of Hebrews urged the believers to do good and to share with one another, as Hebrews 13 and 16 says. If we could get the next slide, please. Sorry. Um, all right. I thought I had some extra verses there. The writer of Hebrews urged the believers to do good and to share with one another. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16. And both Peter and Paul urged generous hospitality among believers. 1 Peter 4.9 and Romans 12.13. To rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep is both the privilege and responsibility of members of God's family, which is from Romans 12 and 15. God has called us to encourage our brothers and sisters in Him, to lift up other people's hands, to, to help others when they are in need. Uh, verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Here, the faithfulness and generosity of the Philippian church is clearly on display. Looking back to the beginning of the gospel, Paul referred to the earlier days of his ministry, now at least a decade in the past, when he visited Macedonia for the first time and arrived at Philippi. His visit was successful there in that he established a strong, healthy congregation Though his time in Philippi was not without controversy, as was typical when the gospel clash, clashed with the worldly culture. As you will read in Acts chapter 16, verses 12 to 40, which we don't have time to go into today. It goes through how the Philippian church was started. When Paul left Philippi, uh, Philippi after being released from prison there, the Philippians supported his ministry. They were remarkable in being the only one of the Macedonian churches to do so, though apparently some other congregations elsewhere did support the apostle. 2 Corinthians 11.8 and 12.13 says, This early and ongoing support demonstrates once again the especially close relationship between Paul and these people. Verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. Paul recounted yet another instance of Philippian generosity, their support for him during his ministry in Thessalonica. Um, and the account for that is found in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. This is noteworthy because his ministry in Thessalonica closely followed his work in Philippi. He went there and he went down to Thessalonica fairly soon afterwards indicating that the Philippians began supporting Paul immediately. Apparently, they sent support to Paul on multiple occasions during his time in Thessalonica, as indicated by the words once and again. Later, in writing to the Thessalonians, Paul noted that he worked hard while there, presumably at tent making so as not to be a burden to anyone. As you will read in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9 and 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 8 talks about not being a burden to them. 
and that he worked with his own hands. The Philippian gifts were no doubt eagerly welcomed and greatly appreciated at that time. This may have been one of the occasions when Paul knew what it meant to be in want. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12. He was working there without an income, basically, or trying to do things um, the hard way. Verse 17. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Paul made it clear that his remarks about the Philippians' generosity were not a fishing expedition for more funding. He simply wanted them to receive the appropriate thanks for their gift and praise for their faithful generosity. God loves it when we faithfully give. God loves it when we give to support the missions field, when we give to support those that are in need and doing the service of God. Verse 18, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. In addition to emphasizing that he was not seeking additional funding, Paul wanted to put the Philippians' mind at ease about his current situation. He was well supplied, in fact abundantly supplied, thanks to the generous gift sent via Epaphroditus. The phrase translated having received is commercial language and similar to that used when providing a receipt. Paul was in effect providing a return receipt for the gift. He let the Philippians know that it had arrived, that it was much appreciated and that it more than met his current need. Verse 19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It's interesting that they just sent him a gift, but he's talking about their need. And he realized that people had given even out of their own necessities. They didn't have the money, and yet they wanted to help Paul. They wanted to help the work of God going forward, and they still gave. As if to drive home Jesus' point about generosity, Paul issued a blessing saying that God would in return supply all of the Philippians' needs. There is a principle that can be quite difficult to understand at first, that when we give, God will supply. And, uh, and mostly, he supplies way above what we ever gave in the first place. Because he loves a cheerful giver. We live in the confidence that our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we ask him, and that he loves to give good gifts to his children. Even as he provides for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, he will provide for us and more. Paul added the reminder that this provision is made through the riches in glory, through his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Christ has the resources of this vast universe and more at his disposal. He is able to grant not only our spiritual needs, but all of our needs. Verse 20, now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Reflecting on the grace of God and his generous provision that he's made available to all of his people, Paul could not help but break forth into praise. Paul's words here are sealed with an amen, an emphatic statement meaning, let it be so. Let God always be glorified. Philippians 4 and 21, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. He's now closing out starting the closing out of this epistle. In closing his letter, 
Paul sent a warm greeting to the church. Following his pattern in this letter, he included all the believers rather than singling out leaders or personal friends. You can also see how he does that in uh, chapter 1 and verse 1 of Philippians as well. By doing so, Paul emphasized the equal nature of the church. While some are appointed as leaders or to serve in special functions, they are not regarded as more important than the rest. Again, Paul was emphasizing his theme of unity. We all need to be in this together. We all need to work together. We all need to realize that we all have importance and that God loves us all equally and not one more than another. Verse 22, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Paul gave a clue concerning the reach of the gospel by mentioning especially those who belong to Caesar's household among those who greeted the Philippians. Presumably, this definitively locates the place of Paul's writing as Rome. More than that, it shows that some members of Caesar's household have become believers in Christ. Now, when you think about Caesar and how he continually persecuted the church, that's not a small thing. The the Greek word translated household here has a broad meaning. So we cannot assume that members of the imperial family had become Christians. The power of the gospel had penetrated into the very household of Caesar. We do not know exactly how close to the throne this meant. It could be that Caesar's employees, his servants, or even the praetorian guard who imprisoned Paul were saved. And he certainly had a lot of time to preach to them. Um, And uh, Paul generally had a pretty powerful uh, preaching ministry. Though he was in prison, Paul was not inactive. He and others were boldly sharing their faith with positive results. It would have been easy for Paul and others in Rome to adopt a victim mindset, believing that they had to hunker down and wait for opposition to the gospel to subside before sharing their faith. After all, Paul was in prison for preaching about Jesus. However, his circumstances actually emboldened the believers to share more freely as we Saw in chapter 1, verse 14 of Philippians. We often put limits on our ability to share the gospel where no such limits exist. We realize that we cannot, or sorry, we reason that we cannot reach members of another religious group because their minds are already made up about matters of faith. That's not true. We do not reach out to the young people in our communities because we fear they would never listen to people of our generation. We hear the church derided by co-workers, so we conclude they will never be open to hearing the truth of the gospel. When we make those judgments, we exclude the work of the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost was a green light for world evangelism. We dare not put up stop signs because of our fear and our limitations. We serve a limitless God. And often the people that are most against the church are the ones that God has been working on for a while. (laughs) And they're, they're trying to fight against what God wants to do in their lives. We serve a limitless God. If Paul could infiltrate the very household of Caesar with the gospel that was actively persecuting the church, there should be no country, no community, no workplace, no religious group, no ethnic group, no home that we cannot reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has all power. He has the ability to reach all people. And we're going to celebrate that next week.
Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul had written a warm, encouraging letter to his friends at Philippi. And he ended that letter with a, with a note of equal tenderness. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Could there be a more fitting final word to beloved believers than this amen or let it be so? We need the grace of God in our lives. And he has flowed that out abundantly to us. Whether he lets us go through situations or not, he is in control. And he is trying to bring us closer to him through whatever situation we go through, whether it's our fault or not. He is trying to draw us closer to him.